Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my name is Jason, and I am um, so grateful and privileged, humbled to be a pastor here at Two Rivers. Welcome to our living room this morning. Uh, we're so glad that you're here with us. Um, I do want to mention just a few things um, before we get there. Sarah, I'm going to do announcements now instead of at the end. Um, we're going to make Linda's um, uh, contact information available in the newsletter this week. Uh, we send out a newsletter every um, Tuesday or Wednesday so that you can be connected to things in the life of our, of our church. And so in that will be Linda's uh, contact information, and she is making herself available to lead that study this summer. Um, and so if that is a way that you want to get in touch with her, we want you to know about that. Just some Sunday stuff. Uh, I'll talk about this slide in just a second. Know this, after our church service uh, today, my friend Bert across the way, he's the senior pastor here at Council Tree, our host that allows us to be here every Sunday. He's 50, 50 years old. Y'all, have you guys, anybody ever seen that Saturday Night Live skit? I'm 50 years old. I can stretch, kick, Rich, anyone, no one? Okay, it's all good. Anyway, uh, he's 50 and he's going on sabbatical for the next three Sundays. And so they're throwing a big party in that quad right after church. They've hired a folk band. Sounds great. They're gonna have tacos, burritos. Um, They're just having like a donation bucket. And so they have invited us to party with them. Who doesn't wanna go to a party right after church on a beautiful day, literally right there. Live music, Tacos and burritos, let's hang out. Anyway, if you can't, no worries, but we're invited. We wanted you to know about that. Uh, this slide, the scatter slide, if you're new here, we, our rhythm as in, just in terms of like church life and fellowship is the last Sunday of the month. Uh, we don't gather together at a service. We scatter together and we go serve. And our service is our worship for that particular uh, Sunday, and that is next Sunday. So we will not be here next Sunday. Here are some projects uh, up uh, that you can be in touch with. Uh, we've got some uh, yard work that we're doing for some foster families. Uh, I'm gonna be at Christian Core Academy. Uh, friends from our church started this uh, school years ago, and their um, building is just south on college, south of Harmony. Uh, we need about 10 or 15 at least to do some projects for that school. Lindsay's having a prayer meeting. There's also opportunity for you to get with your life group, your friends, your family, and go serve and bless. And so we just encourage you to go do that next Sunday. Uh, go serve and bless and give, um, give time, talent, treasure away uh, to people in our community. Um, so, and then two weeks from today, uh, we are starting uh, a, a new rhythm for summer. A lot of our students are gone and uh, we, we, we just wanted to get everybody in one room as a church family. And so we're gonna do one service for the summer months. And it's gonna be fantastic. We're bringing coffee ministry back on June 6th. We need some coffee brewers to serve. We need some coffee brewers to serve. So if you clap just now, volunteer to help brew coffee occasionally. You know, hook, bait and switch you on that. I got you on that. Um, so June 6th, we're gonna have one service for the summer. We're gonna be here at Council Tree all summer for the next three months, June, July, August, uh, 10 a.m., so we're just going right in the middle between nine and 10. So if you come here two weeks and you come to the 11, you're gonna miss it. You're gonna hear my benediction at 11. So uh, get that in your rhythm for the summer that we're gonna be 
um, doing 10 a.m. services. Uh, I think, oh, uh, yes, uh, the Connect class, that's on the 6th as well. This is a space for people that are newer to our church family, uh, just to get some time, honestly, with myself and Sarah West, our Connections Minister, uh, just to tell our story a little bit, our church story, our personal story, invite you into this journey as well. Uh, help you know how to get involved here, how to become a partner with us in this vision and mission. So that's that info. And then the last thing is, uh, here are the summer needs. Uh, so we need some, we have some volunteer needs to fill media. Um, talk to Andrew Spada, who's getting married next Sunday, by the way. Big, big, big day, big day next uh, Sunday afternoon. He needs some help with media. Becca Miller needs some help with kids. Here's what she's looking for with kids ministry. Can you serve one Sunday in June, one in July, one in August? Can, can you jump in and, and, and minister and serve our kids ministry three times over the course of the summer? That's, that's the needs that she has. And then Sarah's needing some, some connection people. So that's that. Uh, would you now uh, open your Bible to Galatians chapter three as we get into the word this morning, uh, journeying through uh, my favorite book, uh, my favorite epistle for sure. I think my, probably my favorite book in the Bible. If I had to have just one book uh, of the text for the rest of my life, I, I would choose Galatians so that I would never ever uh, forget the freedom that we have in Christ. So just a few verses today, uh, Galatians 1 to 5, Galatians 3, 1 to 5. Before we get there, I want to uh, compare how Paul starts his letter to the church in Corinth to how he starts his letter to the churches in Galatia. When you read 1 Corinthians, the first letter, and you read 2 Corinthians in the New Testament, you are going to quickly realize that Paul is correcting all sorts of stuff that is going on in the life of the church. It's a little messy, and the church was a mess because people are messy, and the church can be a mess. And he is pastorally leading and guiding them and correcting them. The people in the churches uh, were involved in all, all kinds, all kinds of outward sin. And he, he engages them about strife and envy and jealousy and temple prostitution and sexual immorality and the misuse of spiritual gifts. In, in, in a word, uh, it was pretty chaotic, the church was pretty chaotic. And what's interesting, when you read uh, the first letter in 1 Corinthians and you see how he starts it, Paul never says to them at the beginning or ever throughout, he never says to them, you foolish Corinthians. He doesn't utter that phrase to those churches. In fact, I wanna show you how he begins this letter. This is 1 Corinthians 1, verse two. Now remember, all kinds of chaos, Real messy, all kind of outward sin going on. And this is how Paul starts the letter. He says, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, to those sanctified in Jesus and who are called to be holy. And what I want to point out in this is that he uses sanctified in the past tense. He is speaking a positional identity over them. He is not saying, hey, you need to work hard in your sanctification process to get somewhere. He speaks to them at the very beginning of the letter and he calls them sanctified, past tense. And then he says, who are called to be 
holy. He doesn't say to those who are called to do better at being, at being holy, right? He just, he's speaking these like positional uh, realities over them. Why does he do this? Because it is our position in Christ, it is our identity in Christ that empowers believers, followers of Jesus on what it means to live for Christ. The gospel of grace is not about behavior modification. And when I say that, here's what I mean by that. That you need to do better and live better so that God accepts you and that he will keep accepting you every day. The gospel message is not behavior modification. The gospel message is you are justified by faith in Jesus alone, by his grace alone. And that God accepts you because of Jesus. And that life change, transformation, happens out of that positional place of believing rightly that we are justified by faith alone in Jesus alone. The Corinthian church was in step with right theology. Paul's not correcting their understanding of justification by faith. What they needed help with was what does it mean for me in that place now to be transformed by being justified by faith so that I can learn how to shake off things that are keeping me in bondage and learn how to relate to people in the church and learn how to have healing in my life and learn how to forgive people and learn how to become more and more conformed to the image of Jesus. That's what they needed help with. And so Paul does that. Now, here's what's interesting about this comparison. Let's look at how Paul starts. Same author, right? The Apostle Paul, same dude, wrote the same letters. One to was the churches in Corinth, one is the churches in Galatia. And here's how he starts Galatia. Galatians 1.6. I am astonished. Other translations would say, I am appalled. What is he so appalled with? Paul planted these churches. He, he started these churches. He, he proclaimed the gospel. They believed these new covenant churches centered in Jesus began. And he writes them just a few years after he started these churches. And he was astonished. He was appalled. By what? That you are, that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ. And you are turning to a different gospel. See, the issues were different in the two churches. In the church of Galatia, the issue was on theology. The issue was on right believing. And that is what Paul is coming after. And this is how it starts. This is the first verse of our passage today. Listen to this language. Oh, foolish Galatians. Paul loves these people. He loves this church. He started the church. And he's like, hey, foolish Galatians. And he uses the language, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was clearly, clearly portrayed as crucified. You see, when it came to wrong behavior and the churches in Corinth, what did Paul do? He called the glory out of them. He spoke an identity in Christ. He called the glory out of them. Why? Because when we get the glory called out of us, our lives get transformed in the way of Jesus. But he did something really different in the, in the letter to the church in Galatia, because when it came to their wrong belief, their wrong belief, he rebuked them passionately because their wrong belief about adding Moses and the law and requirements to the message of Jesus and his grace, and they were calling that good news, and Paul calls it a different gospel. That's why the difference is there. 
Now, I wanna look at these first two words because I think they're pretty provocative words that Paul uses to start chapter three with. Uh, First word is foolish. The second word is bewitch. You foolish Galatians, clearly not a compliment. It's clearly not a compliment to to have them engage this, right? You foolish Galatians. The question is, like, what is the emotion of Paul? Is he angry? Is he compassionate? What does this mean that he's calling them foolish? And I'm gonna help you with this by... um, explaining a phrase that we use a lot in the South. I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, a little farm town outside of Nashville. And in the South, uh, you might hear this phrase uh, sometime uttered by somebody to, you know, to bless someone. And they're like, oh, well, bless your, bless your heart, which is just a kind way to say, you poor stupid idiot, <laughs> right? It's like compassion and disbelief all mixed up into one. Well, bless your heart, honey, Right? I think what Paul is saying to the Galatians by saying you foolish Galatians is compassion and love mixed with disbelief at how easily they were swayed away from the gospel and they were trading their freedom in Christ for bondage to the law again, which is foolish. Now foolish, I think is a pretty unfortunate translation of the Greek word because for us in English, for our English, because uh, oftentimes when we think of the word foolish, we attribute it to moral character, but that's not what Paul is actually talking about here. He's not calling out moral character. A better translation of the word is, uh, Galatians, you are lacking understanding. You lack understanding, or you're lacking discernment about what is true. That's what he's talking with them about. Here's a paraphrase. Oh, my friends, you don't understand the grace of God and Jesus. You have lost discernment and you are trading your freedom for captivity. You have been tricked. And can he use the word bewitched? Who bewitched you? Who tricked you? The literal translation of bewitched is who put you under a spell? Like think magic, think witchcraft. And witchcraft at the core of witchcraft is manipulation and mind control. That's what Paul is talking about. This is the wickedness that Paul is talking about to describe the false teachers who are swaying the believers in Galatia away from the gospel and back to the law. And he uses strong language on purpose. Chapter one, here was the strong language. I am appalled, I am astonished. Chapter two, here's some strong language. There are false, false brothers who have infiltrated our ranks. They have come in, they are, they are wolves with sheep's clothing and they're coming in and they're sitting among you and they're talking and they're infiltrating our ranks and here's what they're doing. They're spying out the freedom that we have in Christ and here's what they wanna do. They wanna make you slaves again. Strong, strong language. Chapter three, he uses the word foolish and bewitched. Why would Paul do this? To get their attention, to grab their attention so that they will wake up. He loves them so much and he wants them to wake up to the truth of the gospel and to break any agreements that they have made with a false message that will put them in bondage to the law again. Who has bewitched you? 
He's gonna take them back to their salvation day. He wants to take them back to the day they, that he was there and they, they heard the gospel and they saw Jesus clearly as crucified and they believed and the spirit of God came in them and it was salvation day for them and God was working miracles among them. Don't you remember the day when I was there and you saw Jesus clearly as crucified? He was an atonement for your sin and because of the blood of Jesus, you have been wholly forgiven and you have been declared righteous. This is the message that Paul was giving them. And they believed and they were saved. He takes them back to their salvation day. And this is important in his argument because they needed to understand how could they be so easily fooled to go back to the law again after they received the spirit of Jesus by grace alone? How how, how are you so easily fooled to go back to to behaving and following requirements and doing this, that, and the other in order to believe that you're accepted by God and belong to the church when you were filled with his spirit the day I proclaimed the gospel of grace to you. And what has already happened in their life proves to them that salvation is all by God's initiative. It's all by God's grace. All of his doing and us simply just believing and receiving the message and the work of Jesus. And if we forget this and we try to perfect in our life what God has begun at the beginning, we get confused and we add laws and requirements to uh, thinking that this is how God accepts us and he keeps accepting us and we reimpose the law into our lives. And when we reimpose the law, into our lives, when you, we, when you reimpose law with grace, it nullifies grace. And that's the issue of this whole letter is the mixture between the old covenant Mosaic law and the new covenant message of Jesus. And so to, to get his readers, to get us centered in pure grace, he takes them back to their salvation day when they received the spirit, when they believed, and he's gonna ask them four rapid fire rhetorical questions Uh, to help convince them of the message of the pure gospel. We've seen Paul use logic in the first two chapters. We've seen him use persuasion. We've seen him use passionate preaching to build his case for freedom in Christ, for the message, the true message that we are justified in Christ alone. As we get into chapter three, we see rhetorical questions. What are rhetorical questions? You know the answer to this. We use rhetorical questions in conversation, perhaps even in debate, uh, to get the reader or the listener uh, to arrive at at the desired answer. I'm gonna ask a rhetorical question to get you to arrive at my desired answer for you. So it'd be like this. If you came and asked me, hey, Swain, Are you excited to hike some 14ers this summer? I might say to you, well, is the Pope Catholic? Or I might say, well, does a a bear poo in the woods? And polite answer, well, of course. Of course, I just need to get some permission from my wife to do it, right? But, But the implied answer is yes. Here's the answer for Paul. Here's the crux, center answer for Paul in all these rhetorical questions that we're about to see. We are, and we talked about this at length last week in our message. We are justified. We, we stand wholly forgiven, declared righteous before the Father because of Jesus alone and his work. That is what is true. That is what Paul is getting them to. Because in the kingdom of God, it's all vertigo. 
Everything is grace in the kingdom of God. It is freedom for us to understand and receive the unmerited favor of God, grace, unmerited favor, God's one-way love, grace, one-way love, unmerited favor. It is freedom for us to believe and receive it. It is folly to believe that God requires something of me to be saved or to stay saved, to belong or to continue to belong. It is freedom in believing that God has done it all for us and gives it to us freely. It is folly believing that I must add anything to the work of Jesus to be saved, stay saved. Freedom or folly, freedom or folly. Pure grace, honestly, it's a tough concept to grasp because everything in the world and everything in our flesh goes against it. It is a tough concept to grasp, but not understanding the pure grace of God is the most enslaving folly that there is. And so Paul, again, uses these rhetorical questions to build a case for the message of grace, pure grace. Let me read the entire uh, passage. This will be Galatians uh, 3. I'll read 1 to 5. Paul says, Oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly or clearly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this, which is kind of funny because then he's gonna rapid fire like four rhetorical questions. Um, But it's one point. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Rhetorical question after rhetorical question after rhetorical question to get them to answer the questions honestly from their own experience and what they know to be true. He wants them to see that it is foolish to think that the spirit came through anything of their own doing. And here's the chronology of it for this, these churches that were receiving this letter. They received the spirit in the chronology of their story before the Judaizers ever came up from Jerusalem and said, yeah, you gotta add this and you gotta add this and you gotta add this to, to truly fulfill your salvation and belong to Jesus. Don't you remember? It all started by grace. Like, think, think with me. It's so clear to him. And this is the heart of the matter for Paul. And if they answer the question honestly, he knows that they will become convinced that the Judaizers, that the, the Judaizers' message was false to put them back in prison. He uses their salvation day, their day of conversion, that that was the day that you were filled with the Holy Spirit. To be a Christian is to be indwelt with the Holy Spirit of Jesus and to be indwelt by the Spirit is to be a Christian. And what Paul is talking about here is not some subsequent experience or thing that happens after a person believes in Jesus and the Spirit comes later. That's not what Paul is saying. What he is taking them back to is the very day they heard the message of the gospel and they believed God filled them with the Spirit. They were indwelt with the Spirit that day and it was by a work of his Grace, Paul is clear, faith in Christ means being granted God's spirit at conversion. 
And they received the Spirit when they believed. And then he goes to the next question. And also, having begun in the Spirit by his grace alone, before the Judaizers ever came to you, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Implied answer, no. May it never be. What Paul means by that word flesh, that's an important word. What Paul means by flesh is ignoring the all-sufficiency of Jesus, his work, his grace, his mercy, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to transform a person's life. It's, it's, it's believing that that's not enough for real transforming life change, that we have to add things to that in order for a person's life to truly change and reflect God in our lives. And so that's the question. And he sees the flesh. The reason why flesh is important is because I think the NIV uh, translates it um, effort, I believe, human effort. And I think that's a little confusing for us to understand this because um, what, what we say at Two Rivers a lot is that the gospel is opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. Like we participate in the work of God to transform our lives. But effort is not the same as flesh. What Paul is juxtaposing is a life in the flesh or a life in the spirit. Trusting in your own ability and your own determination to do the works to be justified before God or trusting fully in the grace of Jesus. That is what he is juxtaposing uh, in his argument to this church. Paul sees a life in the flesh as directly opposed to life in the spirit. God gives you his spirit, not because you did anything, or are doing anything to keep his spirit, but because you believed, simple belief. Um, If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're in this room and you are a follower of Jesus, you need to come to grips with the glory, with the power that is within you, the Holy Spirit of Christ in you. Christ said it this way, my Holy Spirit will be given to you and you will do greater things than I have done. Right? Paul says in Romans that the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead lives in you. The scriptures declare that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We need to receive the truth that the spirit of Christ resides in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. And that is a powerful truth, amen, church? Do you trust in the, in, in the, in the work of Jesus in his grace and the, and the Holy Spirit to transform your life and people around you? Or do we need to go back to rules and requirements so people will clean themselves up? And Paul is passionately teaching, trust in Jesus and the Spirit. That's the only thing that's gonna transform our lives. How did, how did God give the Spirit to believers in, in Galatia? How does God give the Spirit to us? God gave it to us not because we are good, but because Jesus is good. The law is not a prerequisite for salvation, and it is not a prerequisite to complete salvation. It is all a work of God's grace. And we grow, we grow in grace, and we mature, and we grow in our spiritual lives in the same way that we received Um, the spiritual power to begin with, not by working hard, but by simply seeing clearly and believing Jesus Christ as crucified. And Paul's in a battle. Every single text we get to, we'll see it throughout the entire study. Paul's in a battle. And the battle is this. It is freedom versus legalism. 
It is flesh versus the spirit. And he is not going to stop battling for grace and freedom in Jesus. He's fighting against the evil one himself who seeks to still kill and destroy. He is fighting for freedom so that believers can actually understand what abundant life in Jesus really, really is. Here's the problem with the law. And we're gonna, when we get into the, to the end of chapter three, uh, Paul's gonna unpack this more and more. But this, this is the problem with the law. The problem with the old covenant law is that it cannot produce the obedience that it requires of you. It gives you a standard of perfection, but there's no empowerment to it. The law, the old covenant law is powerless to affect real change in your life. Here's the beauty of grace. The beauty of grace is that it saves you and that it empowers you to have life transformation. The beauty of grace is that the Holy Spirit is powerful enough for your life to experience radical transformation. And the Holy Spirit wants to do that with you and is inviting you to participate with the Holy Spirit and conforming us more and more into the image of Jesus. The law cannot do that. For many of us um, in this room, I know many people that I've talked to over the years, um, how we've grown up understanding Christianity, how we've grown up understanding what it means to know God and follow God, um, those lessons, uh, we actually get robbed of freedom in those things. Um, Our understanding of Christian um, identity and Christian living is uh, cleanliness rules and has made us feel manipulated and controlled. And that's why sometimes we go, well, you're inviting me to church, what should I wear? Why would someone ask that? We talked about this last week because I have to wear something specific to be accepted, right? There's, there's all these cleanliness rules that we create for people and religion has held many of us in bondage. I don't know, I can't tell you in thinking about my own life and story when or how I was bewitched but I, I was bewitched, um, led astray, deceived. I remember, I, I, I have a visceral memory of the day that I became a Christian, the day that I remembered at 11 years old when I saw clearly Jesus Christ as crucified and I believed. Like I remember, I remember that day. God rescued me when I couldn't rescue myself. Uh, but somehow over time, I got back to rescuing myself. I I lived under shoulds and oughts and the law got reimposed in my life and I lived under the bondage of what we're calling in the series a grace and law mixture Um, for many years. um, I want you to understand the law does offer us a gift and here's the gift. It will lead you to the savior. That's the gift of the law. Paul says in Romans seven that the law is holy and good and it is. The gift of the law is that it shows us our inability to achieve righteousness on our own. And it leads us to go, I need a savior. And you have one and his name is Jesus of Nazareth and he is the Lord of glory. And he is coming to remind you today that you are free in his grace and his mercy. The problem, the problem is not the law, hear this. The problem is believing the lie that the law makes me righteous or keeps me righteous. That's the problem. Legalism 
is the attempt to be righteous through the law. But righteousness, I'm preaching this now, righteousness comes only through Jesus Christ and his crucifixion for us. Christ is the end. Christ is the end of merit. Christ is the end of the law. He is righteousness for all who believe, both on the day of salvation and for every day thereafter. That's why the author of Hebrews says, let us keep our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the the perfecter of our faith. Let us keep our eyes on Jesus, the glory of Jesus. What is the glory of Jesus? Grace and truth, the truth that Jesus is full of grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And no matter how much you receive it, it will never come to an end. It is lavished on you. But this is exactly, this is exactly what the Galatian church is on the verge of doing. Leaving that message and trading trading their liberty for bondage. And for Paul, it is foolish to strive for what we already possess. I've been thinking about this question. What is so tempting for Christians about not understanding, believing, living in true freedom? Why is it so easy for people who believe in Jesus, follow Jesus, to get tripped up in legalism? I think it's something that we need to consider. Why is it so easy for me? Why is it so easy for you? Why is it so easy for people to get tripped up and go to a works-based way of thinking about our relationship with God, that God's posture is more toward us when we're doing all the spiritual disciplines and we're behaving right and God's posture is against us when everything of the New Testament scriptures says the other, that the love of God, is that nothing ever separates you from the love of God. Jesus never leaves you or forsake you. Nothing can ever snatch you out of me. Like, why are we so tempted to believe this? Here's a quote from a friend. I didn't even know I was in a prison. Life was comfortable and predictable. And I think that's a big temptation. There is a comfortability and a predictability about living in the prison of legalism. I got three squares a day. I know it's coming. I mean, we think about the book of Isaiah and he's like calling out um, the Hebrew people because they wanted to go back to Egypt. But this happens in our life as well. It's comfortable and it's predictable. And I can evaluate myself because honestly, you guys, I'm a pretty good Christian up here. I mean, I I have a decent amount of obedience in my life. And uh, I'm probably obedient than maybe not all of you because some of you have probably longer quiet times than me. But... I still have some quiet times. You know what I mean? And so it makes me feel better about myself that I'm like, I'm doing more than you're doing. Like it's comfortable, it's predictable, and I can evaluate myself by it. They make myself feel better. Life was comfortable and predictable. I believe the lie that my worth and value came from my performance. But what I believed was comfortable drove me to depression hating myself, hating my life because it was never good enough. Another quote, another friend. I wrapped the chains back around me with good works. I didn't drink or smoke or dance. This isn't my quote because I like to throw down. Uh, We are going to, uh, the Swain Train, we're going to have a full choreographed dance for Andrew Spada's reception next week. Hopefully there'll be a video you'll get to enjoy it at some point. 
But my friend, I didn't drink, smoke, or dance. I read my Bible and spent 15 minutes going through my prayer list every day. And I became the godliest woman in the singles ministry. Prison, right? Can you see the prison? Here's a prison. Morality apart from grace is a prison. And a foolish person doesn't understand this. I succumbed in my life. I succumbed to the pressure to impress you with my badges and to hide all my baggage because I was afraid that if I show you my baggage, my stuff, you're gonna judge me or you're gonna leave me. And so you weren't safe for me. The church wasn't safe for me because I gotta hide the baggage and I gotta show you what I'm good at so I get some of this. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I, I, was, I was bewitched. I began to strive to perfect in the flesh what was already mine, people-pleasing, perfectionism. I think we use those words sometimes and we throw them around lightheartedly. And I'm just gonna stand here and say to you, I don't think we should throw those things around lightheartedly because people-pleasing and striving for perfection, that's a prison to live in. And it's not the invitation of the gospel for you to be free. It's not something lighthearted. It lacks understanding. And people who are trying to be perfect tend not to need Jesus very much. It's a quote from one of my seminary professors. He spoke this, uh, Dr. Sosi, I'll never forget it. He said this in, in theology class. He said, if we truly understand who we are in Christ, we bring no baggage and no badges. Like, I want you to think about that. Because the irony of grace, here's the irony of grace. Here's the, here's the vertigo of grace. Here's the upside down reality of the kingdom of God. The irony is that grace always produces the character and the, and the obedience that the law intends, but it doesn't require it of you. But it does elicit a response from you. You see, unmerited favor or God's one-way love, grace doesn't require anything of you, it just gives you something freely. One way love doesn't require anything in return. One way love cures, one way love transforms, one way love changes everything. And while it elicits certainly grace, freedom, one way love, unmerited favor, the gospel message, it elicits a response from me, which is my love in return. It comes to me without any reference, any requirement to my response. This is the scandal of grace. This is the scandal of grace. Here's the invitation today from our message. And I'll close with this. Worship team, you can come back and lead us. The invitation today is twofold. Lay down your baggage. Toxic guilt, toxic shame from your past and receive the free gift of God's abundant Grace, it forgives you wholly. It declares you righteous and justified before the Father. Lay down your baggage, release it. And secondly, I would say this, lay down your religion. Lay down your badges, lay down your badges and you're striving for more badges. Wherever you are today, I pray that the words of this ancient hymn, ancient, old, old hymn would resonate over you. 
Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone, gloriously, gloriously complete. Amen? You know what amen means? It means, yes, I agree. It means, yes, that resonates with me. That's what that means. And so when you say amen, you're like, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, more of your grace, more of your freedom. That's what's gonna transform my life.